welcome to episode 475 of the CyberLaw Podcast. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. And we're about to express views not shared by our institutions, our clients, our family, friends, or even our pets. Joining me for the news roundup, a brand new contributor, Adam Hickey, who helped to get the National Security Division of the Justice Department off the ground and ended as Deputy Assistant Attorney General there. He's now practicing law at Mayor Brown in D.C., used to be at the Southern District of New York. Adam, welcome. We're glad to have you on the program. Thanks, Stuart. It's great to be here. Okay. And Paul Rosenzweig, a favorite of the program from Red Branch Consulting, formerly at DHS with me. Paul, it's great to have you back. It's always good to be with you, Stuart. So I thought, you know, we've got stories to cover and mostly tech to focus on, but I thought it would be valuable given that both of you have had serious counterterrorism responsibilities and Adam very recently to talk a little bit about the Hamas attack on Israel and what it means for the U.S. as well as Israel in terms of intelligence, in terms of counter drone capabilities and maybe other things. But let me start with Adam. If you were still in government and people said, what should we do what have we learned from this attack already that should change U.S. policy? What would you say? Well, unfortunately, the first question you ask after something like this is, how did we miss it? Meaning, how did we not know that such a broad and varied level of incursions were coming at an ally? And that may be a question about what we weren't collecting in terms of SIGINT. It might have been other sources that we didn't have ready. It could be a human failure. But the after action is the first step in answering that kind of question. And then I also wonder a bit about once you have a sense of what you missed, where are we in terms of technology when it comes to detecting and countering drones? My layperson's sense of this is that they are so far too small and too fast for any kind of radar or our current technology to really be effective at detecting them and even harder to interdict because of their size. So that may not be right, but that's my impulse. And that seems like the challenge we confront in the future. Yeah, I sort of agree with you on both of those things. I don't think the U.S. should be beating itself up for not having good human on Hamas. That's exactly the kind of adversary that we should be counting on the Israelis to have good human on. They care more about it. They speak the language. They've got people. They've got leverage. They ought to have good human. And they obviously didn't. But we'll have people who want to attack us. And one of the questions will be, how did Hamas manage to keep these plans under wraps? Paul, your thoughts on this? Well, I share your concerns. It strikes me pretty clearly on the intelligence failure side that there are two parts to this. One part is no doubt that the Israelis lacked hard on the ground human intelligence or even you know, SIGINT intelligence that would have given them real-time early warning. But the other part of this, which I think actually is reflective back to our own experiences in 9-11, is that I suspect in the long run, this is going to come down at least in part to a lack of imagination, a lack of analytical imagination on the Israelis' part, which is to say that they've been telling themselves for the last 20 years, basically, that 16, since Hamas took over, that they have them in a box that it's an endemic problem that will suffer, you know, small scale attacks. Iron Dome will be a success. And they could not really bring themselves to imagine that Hamas would launch such a large scale land, sea, air, cyber coordinated attack on such a grand scale. And so 
My guess is that when the inevitable Israeli equivalent of the 9-11 Commission issues its report, that at least half of the failure here is going to be seen as an analytic failure, perhaps even an information sharing failure. You know, military intelligence has something and Mossad has something else. I mean, that's totally speculative, but we'll see stuff like that that looks a lot more like our own. The lights were flashing red and nobody understood it. Experience in 9-11. That's it, I guess. On the drone problem, as we were saying before we started, drones are a great level. They're a technology that less capable adversaries can use. And that's particularly difficult for stronger adversaries like us. A drone can eliminate an aircraft carrier platform, you know, a, a multi-billion dollar platform where a couple of drones can. In the early years after I was out of DHS with you, Stuart, I did some work on some security studies on the issue. And basically from a security standpoint, the only recommendation we had at that time was to prohibit drones, outlaw them, which obviously was not a legitimate response, but they pose it an immensely challenging counterforce problem, given their size, their speed, the cheapness of their production. They're a force multiplier for bad guys. And the way it looks to me, it's only going to get worse, not better in the near term. Yeah, I think maybe there was a sort of failure of imagination in the sense that it's only, to my mind, it's only the drones that made this possible. You know, if you've been to the wall of Gaza, those walls are enormous and they were topped by what amounts to air traffic control towers every few hundred yards where there were people who were very well armed and who could spot an attack and suppress it very quickly. I don't think anybody imagined that what would happen is that they would just use drones to kill off everybody at the top of that pole. As soon as you think of it that way, you realize that what you're doing is creating this very easy target that nobody can escape from. And suddenly, what looked like a, a really secure approach looks like a liability. We're going to see that in the U.S. It wouldn't be that hard if you were an enemy of the United States to bring five people to the United States and smuggle enough drones in so that they could cause terror in three or four different cities. You know, they could easily take out a lot of police resources and you don't have to take out a lot before people are undefended. You know, and I swear I'm not making a political point here, but the failure of the wall around Gaza made me want to begin to renew asking questions about the efficacy of the instinct in America to build a wall on our southern border. I mean, obviously different situations and all that, but, you know, at the same time, a determined adversary is going to have answers for a static defensive situation that we haven't, I, I'm starting to imagine new new actions by cartelistas, for example. Yeah, I'm pretty conservative, but I have never thought the wall was all that valuable. Yes, it slows people down and that you have to do that, but you have to have a response behind the wall after you've slowed them down because 30 seconds is all it buys you, no matter how good the wall is. And I think the Israelis probably didn't really think that. They thought they had it under control. Adam, thinking about intelligence and drones leads me to ask the question, what U.S. law do we need to address some of this? And, and my first thought is, well, we don't even know that as of January 1, we will have any counter drone law or any intelligence on the people most likely to be attacking us, which is the 702 foreign targets who are communicating to the U.S. We need both of those bills before we start thinking about something new. 
Yeah, I think that's right. When folks at the Justice Department were thinking about this when I was there, there was also attention to kind of nitpicky issues like surveillance statutes and what you need exceptions for in order to actually monitor the airspace for signals that indicate drone activity and the like. So I think it's more than just that. And 702, yes, for the foreign actors. I will say, just to be a little bit of a devil's advocate, after 9-11, living in New York, everyone thought that there were going to be suicide bombers on the subway within a number of years, and we didn't see that. We saw a trend towards using things that are very easy and comparatively low-tech guns and trucks to kill people. And so I agree with you that the proliferation of drones will inspire some to do something more spectacular. One advantage of a drone is you can put it in position up high if you're trying to target a particular person. But if you're trying to wreak havoc or cause terror, there are easier ways to do that. And in both cases, you need to be physically here. And one of the things I think that has been remarkably successful is the way the U.S. government has managed to share information and keep people out of the country, not on our airplanes and unable to accomplish something like this from being physically here. And I would focus on those kinds of sort of very basic security measures of, of monitoring who gets in and why they're here. I completely agree that that has turned out to be an enormously effective thing, but it's now the goal line and attackers start on the one because we're not going after them at home anymore. So we have to keep them out. And I don't mean to be political about this, but the complete collapse of even checking people who are crossing the border on the southwest border means that we really cannot count on all of our exquisite intelligence systems for identifying terrorists, because I'm just not sure we are stopping and collecting biometrics on all the people who are coming across that border. They're no longer paying cash for first class tickets, in other words. Yes. To avoid scrutiny. We are. We're living on borrowed time, but as always, it's sometimes better to be lucky than good. And so far, we've been lucky. Yeah. Hey, Stuart, before you leave the Israel topic, just two quick points. The first is, you know, times are early and a lot of what we've just said, we may... We, we could be completely wrong. ...want to walk back in six weeks. So I want to express a great deal of humility about the analysis. I want to especially express it, since I know you have them, to the listeners in Israel who are kind of living this as we speak. And it uh, shout out to them for actually doing what needs to be done while you and I are just, while we three are just talking about it. You, know? I, you, you, cannot, you cannot see those videos without your heart going out to everybody in Israel because they all have kids or relatives or friends who were put at risk and maybe killed. It's a small country. And I met some of the people at some of those kibbutz elements. And, you know, I was afraid to look at some of that stuff for fear I'd see somebody I knew. It's just a terrible thing. And it was intended to be a terrible thing. And uh, the response is going to be terrible as well. Okay, let's move on to other news items. So there was a story in the Wall Street Journal about the U.S.-China Commission member Jacob Hybert, formerly from Google, saying, we really have a 50% chance of a hot conflict with China in the next five years, and our supply chain is going to collapse if we're not careful. Uh, Let me start with Adam. How bad could our supply chain problem be? And what do you think the administration is doing or should be doing about some of the, uh, the risk that people are totally dependent. We have industries that are totally dependent on Chinese supplies, and we're not sure how to respond to that vulnerability. Yeah. To answer your first question, I do think it's a serious issue. It is something the market is starting to address. Companies on their own are looking at so-called 
either de-risking or reshoring are the terms I've seen. And candidly, I think one of the best things from my perspective the government can do is to flag this as a risk and let business leaders decide where to reposition. There are some areas where we should be thinking more strategically, such as with respect to rare earths and other commodities where there there may not be one business that's capable of repositioning. You may need state action to, to put us on firmer footing. But in terms of like where individual companies get their commodities, I think you're seeing them generally reposition themselves and pivot to either other locations in Asia, like Vietnam or, or elsewhere, so that it's less catastrophic yeah. if there is a conflict. So I agree with you. I think on rare earths, actually, is sort of surprising. They're not that rare. What's rare is the manufacturing capability to separate them from the ore. And kind of almost as rare is tolerance for their pretty poor environmental impact. And so that does raise the question, at least on the second, should the U.S. actually say, in the interest of having some rare earths, we should do something about licensing capabilities that we know are going to violate our pollution laws? Wow, a little bit out of my wheelhouse. <laughs> you know, where my mind went was other geographic sources of supply. Yeah. Um, so China's influence in Africa should be interesting to us. There's a competition to be had there. Make sure it's not neglected and we don't end up losing access to sources outside of mainland China. That was my thought. Paul? So all of this is totally concerning. Uh, but what strikes me as even more concerning is that supply chain natural resources is just one third of a trio of dependencies that we have. We also have dependencies on manufactured goods that we rely on here. You know, we're doing better at excluding you know, Huawei handsets, but we have continued dependencies. And we have continued uh, phrases as economic dependencies as so many of our large scale companies continue to do business in China, including ones that are vital national security interests in the tech industry, in the produced goods industry. You know, so this whole idea of decoupling, if we limit it, in our minds only to raw materials, which is, you know, which was the import of the article you talked about. I mean, that's good. That's a good start. But we're sort of missing the forest for the trees, which is the competition with China that might be impacted by a shooting war extends across the entire spectrum of economic activity in the United States. Stuart, I don't know if you let your guests uh, routinely ask questions, but I have one sure. that I'm curious about, which is to what extent did those dependencies, which are somewhat mutual in a way, I mean, the economic dependencies are trade, the best argument for it was always that it prevented wars. Is there any argument that the more swiftly we move to decoupling, the more this becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and we create the situation in which conflict is more likely than, than was otherwise. Maybe. I would have thought that that was the case, that if we think somebody's about to corner the market on some really vital technologies, the tendency to say, well, I want to fight a limited war to make sure that doesn't happen is probably pretty strong. I doubt the U.S. is going to go there first, uh, but I could imagine the Chinese thinking that that was a gamble worth taking. Yeah. You know, it used to be that somebody said, you know, no two countries with a McDonald's had ever gone to war, but that's no longer true anymore. Right. It's a commonplace. McDonald's is everywhere and war is still everywhere as well. So you're right to be concerned that economic decoupling can accelerate the rush to war. But I tend to think that thinking, you know, in the Thomas Schelling grand strategy, there's a lot more fundamental aspects to why nations go to war than whether or not they're both eating McDonald's. 
Yeah. Although to have somebody plausible, say 50% chance in five years, those are sobering predictions. And I can't say they're wrong. So that does mean that companies that expect that they're going to end up on our side of the fight probably need to be preparing for not having resources coming out of China. Well, that is, that is actually one of the major lessons people have not yet learned. There's going to come a time when companies are going to have to choose a flag. And my biggest concern, and I've seen this actually in my private, is that a lot of major corporations are still doing head in the sand and not making even contingency planning for, you know, I mean, they think about it a little, but yeah, you know, they haven't done a robust set of tabletop exercises. They haven't engaged China experts to give them assistance in predicting. The thing I was thinking of is the arrest of the guys at Bain a couple yep. months ago is reportedly yeah, a complete surprise yep. to Bain. Yeah, you know, like fall off the chair surprise at the C-suite level. And you could maybe make an argument that you're willing to sustain that risk because the benefit is greater, but to be unaware of the risk is really a formula for failure. I 100% agree with that. And I think you're hearing, I was just watching um, senior defense official Mika Yang was on a panel talking about the DOD cyber strategy. And you hear the government now explicitly urge companies to take the possibility of armed conflict into account in risk management planning generally. That sounds new to me. I always thought war was the thing companies got to say, well, look, this is not going to be my problem. But then after Ukraine, not only it's a supply chain issue, but it's are you going to be called upon to provide assistance in one direction or the other? Are you going to be threatened for providing technical support in one direction or the other? Is someone going to be sanctioned going to create problems for you economically? And your point, Paul, are your personnel going to be in danger? So if you're looking through a 10K and you're not seeing comments about where your position and political risk, which I think is pretty common, maybe something's missing. Yes. There was a story in the Wall Street Journal that talked about how folks like Bain and other U.S. executives have begun to say, you know, I don't want to go to China because I don't know I, that I'll be allowed to leave. And the reports are that uh, there are three-hour interrogations in the airport. And then you never know whether you might be told, I'm sorry, you can't leave. And maybe you can't leave for a year or two years. Those are very scary possibilities. And the only way to avoid them is not to go at all. Okay. Yeah, the EU is also struggling with this. They've put out a report saying they're assessing the risks associated with some key technologies that they want to make sure that they have a foot in, in order not to, as somebody said, we want to be a player in these technologies, not a playground. I'm not sure they're on track because the four technologies were AI, semiconductors, quantum computing, and biotech. Adam, my guess is they are credible in quantum computing because it's still theoretical, but I don't know of anybody who's actually doing it there. They're not really strong in semiconductors. They might be capable in biotech because it's such a loose term. And they've already established that they're not players in AI by adopting a regulation that presumes that the burden from regulation will fall entirely on other countries and on them. So it does seem to me that they're right to look at those, but I think they've kind of already missed the bus on at least three of them. Yeah, I think the way I saw the headline, it focused on export controls as one of the menu of options. But I don't know that this study is really so much about export controls as it is dependencies. In other words, if the study is doing what it's supposed to, it should be looking at, um, I think these are indisputably four very important areas of technology for the future and for their well-being and their security. So it makes sense to study 
where they are dependent and where they might be compromised or coerced in the future in these four categories. So I wouldn't think of it as this is a study to ensure that their cutting edge technology in these four areas doesn't leak because that may not be the problem they're facing. I love the quote from Thierry Brett and the commissioner for the internal market. Europe is adapting to the new geopolitical realities, putting an end to the era of naivete and acting as a real geopolitical power. It's nice that the era of naivete has ended. Yes. They also have to, you know, being so connected, they do have a problem where if they don't have some policy consistency, that could hurt them down the road too. So I looked at this and saw echoes of the Biden administration's outbound investment EO even though this is about inflows and not outbound, because it lines up pretty well with the technologies we say we're most concerned with. So this makes more sense if they're saying we should have a coordinated export control program with the United States, because those are all technologies where the U.S. is pretty strong. And to be fair, they do have the best chip manufacturing capability in the world. The key to TSMC's success, the U.S. has some pretty good capabilities as well. So if there had even been a breath of a suggestion of multilateralism in this, it would have made a lot of sense. Maybe they just don't want to admit that their controls would have to be multilateral to really be effective. I think it's just good that they're thinking in these terms, which is defensively yes. and, and identifying the right technologies. And that is that is not where Europe was five years ago, 10 years ago. Yes, it's true. I always marveled at the switch in 1945, the Europeans all considered the U.S. practically fatally naive about how things worked in the world and dependent on viewing them through a moral or legal lens. And now, of course, it's completely the reverse, that it's the Europeans who have the naivete and the moral and legal lens in the U.S. that keeps saying that's just not the way the world is. So it's nice to bring them over. The era of naivete has ended. Yes, yes. Thank God. All right. Well, maybe not quite, because Paul the Red Cross has said, We've got some ethical guidance for hacktivists who are participating in war. And the hacktivists have said, yeah, we got some guidance for you, too. You got your guidance right here. <laughs> well, I mean, and happily, you know, the fact that the International Red Cross remains naive may not, you know, mean that Europe isn't losing its naivete, though I suspect there's a continuity there that is unfortunate. So yeah, I mean, the International Red Cross's actions are a response to a relatively new reality, which is that a lot of the cyber aspects of conflict are being conducted by irregular forces, civilians acting as civilian hacktivists, semi-affiliated with and semi-associated with a military chain of command, but not fully. This has especially been prominent in the Ukraine-Russia conflict, where civilian hacktivist groups on both sides have been reasonably active in support of their own nation's objectives. The irregular nature of these actors is a fundamental challenge to the core aspects of the laws of armed conflict, which is to say that the whole idea behind the laws of armed conflict is that armed conflict is between two hierarchically controlled institutions on either side of a conflict. And even if they can't resolve their differences peacefully, at least they can fight within the bounds of certain rules of war involving military necessity, proportionality, don't target civilians needlessly, that sort of thing. And responding to this reality, the International Red Cross has said, well, yeah, we should ask the hacktivists to at least abide by some of these rules. Don't target civilians. Don't target medical facilities, for example. 
there are obviously two problems with it. One that you haven't mentioned is we, we're still struggling to get real militaries right. to abide these rules of conflict in cyberspace. The U.S. does a pretty good job. Most Western nations would say that they do, but there's you know, wide disagreement about exactly how to apply these rules in the cyberspace. And there's also a wide perception that many of our nation state adversaries, like the Russians, even with the groups that they actually control, yeah, more directly are not abiding by these rules. So the first part of the naivete is just continuing to push on the idea that existing rules of armed conflict actually apply effectively in cyberspace. I mean, I think there's an agreement as a legal matter that they should, even the Chinese have sort of signed up to that, but that's been very effective. To now press down upon that and say, and even the guerrillas, even the irregular warfare guys, even the guys who are part-time combatants and then go home to build, uh, you know, porn sites or run ransomware gangs ought to apply is really overly optimistic. And as you said, the first response from both sides of the Russian-Ukraine conflict with these cyber activists was, yeah, yeah, right. Call us in a couple of years. We'll, we'll see how you do it. What's really the only thing I would say on top of that, though, is that at some point there will be an international law reckoning for the Ukraine-Russia conflict generally, both the physical crimes that are alleged to have occurred and allegations of cyber crimes. And the International Criminal Court say what you will about it, whether it's good or bad, but the prosecutors there have said they will take cognizance of cyber crimes as well. And it is the and they case, were promptly I think. hacked right after. <laughs> right, yeah. It, it, yeah. They were promptly hacked right after. But it is the case that to the extent the irregular hacktivists do not comport with the laws of armed conflict, they may in the end run risks of either, you know, international criminal law prosecution under Interpol and various iterations of domestic equivalents of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, or unlikely, but possibly even cognizance in international law. All of this is naivete and starts with the premise that international law matters, but, uh, but you know, it does a little, somewhat, maybe, somewhere. I doubt it. I do too, but you know. And in fact, the war crimes committed in the Ukraine are probably not going to be prosecuted except in a few symbolic cases because the Russians are not, they're, they're not going to lose so badly that they're going to be occupied. And therefore, they're going to resist any of their nationals ever being held to account for allegations of war crimes. And what are we going to do? Just prosecute one side or try to prosecute them and then run the risk that the Russians actually respond with armed force or something close to it? I think that's a little too dim. I mean, we've seen lots of prosecutions for Russian misactivity in absentia. Oh, in absentia, sure. I'm thinking of the shootdown of Malaysia, right? And, and those don't have a deterrent effect in terms of putting people in jail. But we now have a really ironclad historical record that is convincing to anybody except the worst Russian apologist that Russian activity was implicated in the shootdown of Malaysia, what was yeah. it, 17 or something like that. So there's some value to it. Like you, I'm deeply skeptical that any Russian will see the inside of a right. hate jail, but you know. Okay, so let's move to the Supreme Court because the case that's up there, there are already a couple of 230 style cases pending, but the Fifth Circuit, which is going to be an endless source of these cases, actually enjoined several federal agencies, including the White House, from engaging in coercion or persuasion with respect to taking down speech in an effort to get the 
social media platforms to take speech down. And the Supreme Court granted a stay. While the stay was granted, the Fifth Circuit says, oh, we actually want to expand that injunction. And they have now said, in addition to the FBI and the CDC, we think that CISA at DHS also needs to be enjoined. And they went through the legal analysis and basically said, applying existing law, all of those agencies went over the line to turn what had been arguably private censorship into government censorship. And we're going to tell them they can't talk to the platforms anymore. And now, Adam, you have told me that you sort of saw this problem coming and worked hard to try to prevent the FBI from crossing the line. The court has said the FBI crossed the line. So I'd be interested in hearing how you saw this problem, what you encouraged the Bureau to do and not to do, and whether you think the Fifth Circuit is right or wrong. So I have to say, reading these opinions, I didn't have insight into what the CDC or the White House was doing. And my vantage point on this had nothing to do with COVID. It had more to do with elections and covert foreign influence. And so when I read these opinions, I don't recognize myself or the FBI in them. And I just based on the high level of detail on the number of scare quotes in some of the opinions, I'm not confident the record is being accurately described. The bottom line is that the FBI, after 2016, after the hack and dump operations by the Russians and the IRA, came to the view that covert foreign influence is a part of the problems that they need to focus on. This dovetails, as you might recall, with an IG report on FARA and the under-enforcement of FARA. Mm -hmm. so two, two things happened at once that led the FBI to stand up something called the FIDF, the Foreign Influence Task Force, and begin engaging with social media platforms. But importantly, what the FBI always described itself as doing is highlighting speech that was masquerading as Americans when, in fact, based on their investigations abroad, they had reason to believe that those were actually foreign speakers or what Matter would call coordinated inauthentic behavior, right? The troll farms and the like. And so in the run up to the 2018, 2020 and 22 elections, I did see and sometimes even participated in engagements with social media companies. But for the Bureau, it was always very focused on what foreigners were doing, giving a tip or a tell to the company so they could make their own decision about whether to take it down. I did not witness significant encouragement or anything even close to coercion. I will say I think other agencies did have a broader vision of their mission. I think there are some, which I won't name here, that were more interested in the sort of either improving America's literacy when it comes to reading the news or taking a more active role in what the content is on the platform. And that just isn't what law enforcement saw its role to be. Yeah. So the Fifth Circuit did kind of say, we think that law enforcement interventions are more coercive than other government communications because they imply the force of law enforcement and they leave people to wonder, I think they were intending to say this. When somebody says you're carrying illegal content, one possibility is that you're not the victim, you're just another co-conspirator. And so people start to worry about whether they need a lawyer to have further conversations. And so that seems to have been part of what the Fifth Circuit was saying, is that uh, we're going to look really hard at what the FBI is saying and have a hair trigger for improper encouragement. Yeah, I think you're right. That is what they're saying. And I don't know that I'm persuaded by that. You do a better job of articulating what the possible coercive element would be. 
Here it's what, that the FBI might bring a FARA conspiracy charge against the platforms for failing to find the right disinformation. We have for years been sharing information about terrorist use of the internet and child exploitation and even sanctions violations with providers because they have programs set up to try to manage those risks on their platform and they want that information. I think this is very similar to that. I don't think it makes sense to say everything that law enforcement does carries with it the threat of prosecution. The FBI shares enormous amounts of cyber threat information with companies. Is there a risk there that if we share threat indicators with you, the suggestion is if you don't take steps, then you're liable for any hacking after that point and that creates a problem. I am not persuaded that every time the FBI sends information over to a private company, the implication is they could be prosecuted or otherwise restrained for not acting on it. So there was an interesting paper out by the Knight First Amendment Institute by a couple of people who ran some of the, the trust and safety functions at Facebook. It was basically about jawboning. And the message was, yeah, we've been jawboned by the best and it works. We took stuff down because governments that we cared about were leaning on us. And so they ended up suggesting that maybe we should ban ex parte communications about this. There should be a formal mechanism by which platforms report, I have been jawboned. I have been lobbied. It's kind of a lobby disclosure act for the private sector. Curious to know what you think about that idea. Well, these companies seem to find value in getting tips that they run down, which then result in takedowns that they have on their platform of various covert influence operations that affect not only the U.S., but other countries. I don't know that that's so different from a transparency standpoint, but I think certainly while you're trying to investigate the network that's operating on your platform, you're not going to want to be public about what you're doing. I got the sense from reading that, that that had more to do with non-law enforcement efforts. And I think it has more to do with other governments than the U.S. government. And I have no doubt there are governments around the world that are explicit about their viewpoint discrimination and wanting to keep forms of terrorism, I'm using scare quotes there, off the platform when we would look at that and call it political discourse. I have one other point to pick with the court in this case, which is pretty specific, and it has to do with the story about a certain laptop that broke on a particular day, uh, whether the government had a role in that story being suppressed or not moving around. I remember that day. And I remember being on the call with social media companies, which was a standing call at that point where we were in the run-up to the election. And I remember it was very clear the government had nothing to say about that story. And we left right. it to the platforms to make their own decision. The district court implies that because the FBI knew such a laptop existed, it should have corrected the record, which I find crazy. The notion that the Bureau should confirm the existence of an investigation or what evidence it possesses, I don't think that's prudent at all. Uh, and I think the Fifth Circuit moved away from that rationale. That is a very common part of the discussion on the right half of the spectrum about the laptop story. There are people who think that the Bureau's gave all these warnings about foreign influence and hacking as a way of sort of softening up the platforms for suppressing the Biden laptop. And I think that's pretty unlikely. I guess I do think if you're in the business of telling people when something is foreign influence with something like that, I can see believing that the Bureau should have said, actually, we don't have any evidence that this is the Russians and we've been looking at it in a while. Presumably, there were such discussions inside the government because they had been looking at it for months. 
But I can understand if you're a prosecutor, you don't want the FBI saying anything about an investigation that's ongoing. Or if you're the subject. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That narrative gets, I think, the chronology off by a bit. I mean, ever since 2016, everyone who was in this space was worried about hack and dump because it was so remarkably effective in at least occupying the airwaves, the run-up to the 2016 election. And it wasn't just Russia that might have taken you know, a lesson from that. It could well be other government actors as well. So the Bureau and others were warning about, I don't know that the warning was ever, you should take down hacked information. I th- no, it was, you should watch out for it. You're right. And you should be ready. You will have a policy decision to make. You'll have to decide, okay, if it's, what if the hacked information has news value? What if it's not hacked, but it's leaked to a reporter, right? I mean, there, there are lots of different permutations that make this an incredibly hard problem. Advising the platforms, get ahead of this and think about what your policy response is going to be. I don't know that that counts as coercion. I don't think it violates the First yeah, Amendment. I think the FBI is paying for the sins of former intelligence agency officers, 51 of whom jumped to the conclusion within 24 hours that this had all the earmarks of a Russian disinformation operation, conveniently just in time for President Biden to use it in his debate with Trump. And, you know, that has hurt the entire intelligence community with anybody who had doubts about that story. So unfortunately for the Bureau, it happens to be the agency people are most mad at, and it's going to pay for everybody's sin. Okay. The EU has proposed in their never-ending effort to one-up the United States. They've announced that you have to disclose vulnerabilities that you find out about within 24 hours of finding out about it, because that's faster than any of the U.S. agencies. And they're getting pushback, interestingly, from a whole bunch of civil society types and people who do security research. Paul, what's going on here? Yeah, well, it is interesting. On the U.S. domestic side, when we talk about vulnerability disclosure, we generally like the idea. And the dispute is about how quickly, what counts as a vulnerability, who, yeah, what sort of legal protection would you get for the disclosure from the government if you make it to them? That's the parameters of the U.S. debate. The European debate goes off on a different tangent. Number one on their list of why they don't want to have vulnerability disclosure to the government is misuse of the vulnerabilities by governments for intelligence and surveillance purposes. Right. Which is that just wouldn't resonate in the United States. Obviously, it resonates in the in Europe quite a bit. Then there's the possibility that the European governments would themselves be hacked. And so disclosures to the governments would result in further onward transmission of the vulnerabilities to malicious actors who steal them from the governments. That, too, is foreign, I think, to our part of the debate, right? And only in the third thing do they get back to kind of where the three of us would be, which is requiring disclosures might have chilling effects on good faith researchers, the kind of how you should manage a vulnerability disclosure program, when would be good, when would be bad. That's more resonant with us. But what's really, you know, I guess it's kind of remarkable, but I'm looking at the names on this and include some pretty solid names like Vince Cerf, Ron Debert from the Citizens Lab up in Toronto, Tomas Hendrik Ives, the former president of the Republic of Estonia, whose, whose country is the very paradigm of diving into cyber usage. And, yeah. and Katie Mysterious, Jeff Moss. These are not... They're not crazy. You know, not, in, yeah. not crazy people, not inexperienced people. Obviously, viewpoint oriented in a way that maybe I don't resonate with, but not idiots. And for them to highlight governmental misuse. Yeah, that's a little bit silly. But I suspect that what finally 
kind of tip them over, especially some of the more sound of the bunch, is this is disclosure when you found the vulnerability and before you got a patch. Yes. And usually responsible disclosure is you're a security researcher, you find the hole, you go back to the company that produced the product, you tell them about the hole, you give them 60, 90 days to come up with a patch and put it out into the market, and then you disclose. And the idea that you're going to go to however many, 25, 30 governments, and tell them all, oh, don't tell anybody, but there is a problem here, and expect it not to leak, it's not maybe realistic, and it therefore makes responsible disclosure a lot more fraught. Yeah, it certainly does. When I read this, I was actually struck that maybe the era of naivete is not so over in Europe yet. <laughs> you know, I mean, because really, this is an idealized version of the government works, trust us, give it to us, we'll help make it, the European Union's version of this is, we'll help make it happen. And the security researcher side is like, we know how this system works and it's imperfect on our side, it's imperfect on your side. This is a bad idea. And I think it is. I mean, 24 hours, it's an impossible standard. It's dumb. It's just one-upsmanship. They say, well, nobody has 24 hours. Let's make it 24 hours. Then we'll get it first. <laughs> yeah. You know the story about how everybody parks illegally in Paris? The government just uses the no parking laws against you when they piss at you for something else? Yep. That's what this would become, right? The you didn't disclose in 24 hours would be the sword of Damocles over enterprises. Literally every last one of them would at some point or another be guilty of failing to report within 24 hours. And so it would be absolutely at the discretion of governmental regulators who, you know, in Europe never have any sense of wanting to aggrandize more power to themselves. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yes. This is, of course, my, my take on GDPR, but this is yet another. Uh, so speaking of people who are kind of civil society adjacent, Bruce Schneier and Nathan Sanders had a description of the AI policy battle that I know, Adam, you really like. I'm less convinced. Why don't you tell us what you pulled from their op-ed in the New York Times? So I don't know whether I agree with it, but I found it helpful and provocative, at least. The op-ed basically classifies three groups of folks talking about AI policy right now. The doomsayers, who are most concerned about catastrophic, probably longer-term risks. The reformers, who are focused on present-day easier to visualize risks like racist algorithm or sexist use, discrimination and the like. And the warriors who are focused on the race aspects of AI and the risk that one country might get to quote unquote AI first before the US and what that means for whether we should have any regulation at all. And I would say the thesis or a thesis of the piece is that all of those camps frame their policy suggestions in, in terms of what they want to accomplish without necessarily being clear about the economic implications for where they stand or where they sit. And that effort to map a policy position onto where your pocketbook is, is something I had not seen in the debate about what we should care about when it comes to AI policy. And it helped me think about those proposals a little bit more critically than maybe I had before. Fair enough. I noticed that they were snarky about the people who worry about existential risk. They were snarky about the people who worry about national security risk. And they seem completely credulous about the people who said, 
We're just here for the ethics. <laughs> and when it turns out that Baker's law is that when somebody starts telling you about ethics and technology, they're really talking about how to make technology more left-wing than it is. And most of the policy issues that are raised here. I am struck by how saliva-spitting angry the ethicists get when they talk about the catastrophic risk people as though there was only room for one thing to worry about. And by God, these guys are taking our lunch money and we can't have that. We've got to fight the whole idea that there might be an existential risk. So it's a little weird, but I agree with you that it was a useful point at which they said, you know, when people talk about worrying about AI, most of the time they're really talking about their worries about unregulated capitalism, that they're afraid that without regulation, the it's not that the machine will take over, it's that the competitive forces will drive the machine in directions that are dangerous. And that is a perfectly reasonable view of where the danger comes from, except, of course, you can have competition with a non-capitalist country like China and have it end just as badly. All right. Speaking of non-capitalist countries, Paul, Apple has sort of surrendered to Chinese law and has Basically, if I understand it, told everybody who wants to put their app on the app store, at least in China, that they're going to have to get a permission slip from China. And that means going to work with some state-owned enterprise in China to show them that you've done all the right things before you can sell your product on the app store. This is a pretty big deal for consumers in China and for people who want to sell their products there. Well, in some ways, this story is a small version linking back to the story we started the discussion with, which is about the challenge of decoupling economically from China altogether. Yeah, Apple is writ small, just another one of the many companies that are so beholden to the profits from their Chinese divisions that they're willing to make any accommodation necessary to maintain their business profile there. In this case, as you described, Chinese law now requires every app offered in China to have an ICP, an internet content profile. That is basically an approved permission slip from China that presumably includes not just having domestic partners with whom you have to share the profit, but also some control in China of the content that the app provides, and possibly even, in some instances, access to the operating code of the application. The first two of which create economic risks for American companies, and the last of which provides actually, in my mind, an even graver risk to the security of applications, because similar applications will be available in Western stores, and now Chinese hackers have basically the source code. Not all apps really matter that much, but some will be targets of opportunity. So by and large, this is just another example of how many American companies, in this instance, tech companies like Apple, are effectively selling their IP and control of their IP and control of their consumer's IP or their co-branders IP, the people who provide apps to the app store, on the altar of profit and goal. At some point, that's not going to be tenable anymore, I don't think. Yeah. It will be interesting to see how Telegram gets through that. I predict they won't. Yeah. I predict they won't. And, and say what you will about Facebook's other things, WhatsApp probably will resist and refuse because they take the security of their system very seriously. Okay. Well, Twitter uh, is on there, so they're going to have to struggle with the question of what they do. Oh, Musk will kill Cave. We'll give it up in a heartbeat. All right. He's demonstrated that he's all about monetizing his, his platform. Not a political statement, 
He just doesn't care about the security anymore. He wants money and his choice will be easy. Okay, well, we will see. It'll play out over the next few months as apps start dropping off of the Apple store in China. Okay, well, that's it, Paul, Adam. Thanks for joining us. This was a great discussion. Please, for our listeners, send comments and feedback to cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com or leave us a review if you like. This has been episode 475 of the Cyberlaw Podcast. And the activists have said, yeah, we got some guidance for you, too. You got your guidance right here. <laughs>